This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike Morris's Mind Escape. We have episode number 266 tonight. Uh, we are joined by author Stephen Gray. We're going to discuss his uh, new book, How Psychedelics Can Save the World, which is an excellent book. Let's see. I think I got the copy right here. Check that out. Uh, all of the links down below um, to his Amazon page. I'll I'll also add the his website, too. It's Stephen Gray visions.com and you just spell it the same way as i have it down listed down below in the information um and i'll add that link when we're done uh going live as well uh but yeah you can find it on inner traditions his website amazon it's it's everywhere so um but yeah go check that out um and uh if you want to support mind escape all you have to do is click the link tree link down below uh we have a merch store with tons of designs that i created um, we've got Patreon with plenty of excellent episodes. If you like the psychedelic stuff, we have ones with, uh, Rick Strassman and, uh, you know, you name it, anybody that we've had on the show. So, um, go check that out. And a good way to support the show is just to leave us a nice review on, um, Apple podcast or Spotify. We do have video podcasts on Spotify. Uh, so if you're watching on YouTube, please go check those out. And if you're listening on an audio platform, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, at the end of the episode, I will air the trailer for our new documentary, uh, which is called As Within, So Without, From UFOs to DMT, and that will be premiering in March. Uh, we did an episode um, a few days ago where we released it, and uh, again, shout out to Maximo uh, at the Argentinian Film Festival for premiering the trailer, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. So, All right, without further ado... I want to welcome on the show, Stephen. How are you doing, Stephen? No bad. Uh, may I make a slight correction to uh, the website that you listed? I think you said visions. It's Stephen Gray Vision Singular. Okay. Uh, dot com. Yeah. And I will add that at the at the bottom when we're done. So sure. just look for that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed your book. Um, you know, you've kind of compiled 
a lot of information and stuff from wisdom traditions, indigenous traditions, things of that nature, um, and kind of laid out a plan of how, you know, we might turn this thing around because right now it's not headed in such a great direction. Um, but w the, the main thing I actually liked about what, you know, you had in here is you made it seem like it's like an, a long ongoing process and it's not like a take something and cure all or take something and fix all, which is I kind of a, a big mis, you know, conception within the community or even from mm -hmm. outsiders that want to get into it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I just, that was my main takeaway was, was that the, this, how this is going to be like a long drawn out process kind of a thing. Is that a question? <laughs> yeah, it was a, a rhetorical <laughs> question. Uh, no, but so I, I guess, I guess my question for that is though, is why do you think that is, do you think that's the mythology behind psychedelics is that, um, you know, you take something and then it'll automatically fix or heal or whatever you cool. have, but there's a lot of work that has to be done. So, um, I guess, do you see a lot of that out there? Is that why you added it or is that just your personal philosophy on it or? Uh, yeah, that, that's a, that's a good topic actually. Um, well, I'm, I haven't done a, you know, an exhaustive research study of, uh, people's attitudes, but I think it's safe to say, I, you know, I think you've already implied that from what you've said, Mike, that uh, um, it's a common phenomenon in our culture to look for quick fixes and magic bullets and external medicines, you might say, whereas the medicine ultimately is, as they say in this field, oneself um, and one's journey. So, uh, the, the, the psychedelics can induce or elicit amazing experiences, of course, and tune you into, tune one into what you might call the ultimate truth or unconditional reality or, you know, God, if you can handle that word, for example, uh, goddess, if you prefer, uh, uh, non-dual states of consciousness is a term that's used uh, occasionally you know for especially with 5meo dmt for example uh you can have those experiences uh one of the keys that lots of people in this field talk about is the importance of set and setting set meaning your uh, intention and all you bring to it and setting in the actual environment that you do it in that makes a big difference to start with but then so if everything goes well as it were and you have a an experience of this kind of um, you know uh, what the Japanese Zen Buddhists call satori, sudden enlightenment or connection with uh, the holy, the divine, uh, non-dual state. What does that um, guarantee or imply about what's going to happen once you come down? You know, starting from the next day, and that's where I think it gets tricky um, because I don't know that the evidence. Uh, is clear that people who have psychedelic experiences uh, end up dramatically changing their lives for the better. It, there, I, I don't. I, I think the jury is still out on that, which I suppose is a little bit of a an odd thing for a person to say who's got a book called "How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World." Uh, but I think the "how" in that sentence is really important, uh, and. Uh, so in terms of what you're saying, uh, I think, or asking, um, I think, uh, and you implied it, I think, in what you said, 
what you do with those insights or breakthroughs uh, is is what's really going to make a difference over time. You know, it's a, what you might call the daily walk or what a lot of people talk, uh, refer to as integration these days as well. How do you integrate those experiences? So just having an experience of Satori is no guarantee at all that you're going to change your life. I, it's it's going to inform you. There's no doubt about it. But is it going to soften your ego or help you um, uh, release the buried wounds that are holding you back or limiting you and the habitual patterns that you've been using to run your life? That's another question in a way. It requires ongoing attention, I guess you could say. You know, It requires uh, perhaps a simple follow the breath Meditation practice is always an excellent thing to do, um, and and what that is, by the way, is um, what what I'm calling a simple follow the breath type meditation. Is is that's the universal meditation? That's actually just working with your mind. Period. Um, regardless of whether you think of yourself as a spiritual person or involved in any religion or anything like that, the as far as I can tell. And I didn't make this up at all. Uh, there's lots of people say this. A lot of the great mystics would essentially say the same thing, which is the mo- most important understanding altogether is to observe the mind non-judgmentally, neutrally, watch what comes up, and just see it. And simply by seeing it non-judgmentally, uh, whatever it is, then you you hopefully <laughs> over time gradually come to realize that the thoughts that are sabotaging you, limiting you, et cetera, et cetera, depressing you, creating anxiety, creating anger, all those thoughts, they're just thoughts. They're just vapor, and they don't have to have power over you. Uh, Underneath and around all that is what Buddhists, for example, would call the true self. So that's enough of a ramble for the minute. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll just say this, that um, there's been actually, I think there's a couple papers people released uh, recently about like non-specific amplifiers, and you can talk about like Stan yeah. Groff and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's true to a certain degree. I mean, I, I know people that take psychedelics and have taken many psychedelics and they're still assholes. So it's not like, <laughs> you know, it's it, like you said, yeah. it's not a cure-all. So um, for me, I've come to the realization that it's it's a twofold process. Um, mm-hmm. It's being able to use the medicine or psychedelics or whatever, but also being a curious, um, you know, you're interested in like knowledge and in bettering yourself, and, and you're 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 aware, you're self aware. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that some people that do these, you know, take psychoactive compounds or whatever. Um, they're not in it for that. And, and I can go back to my um, early teens and in high school and stuff when I would just take them recreationally. Um, you know, I was playing in bands and writing music and creative stuff. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't really have reverence for it. I mean, I was initially interested because I read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and On the Road and all these different amazing, you know, counterculture type books. Um and that really piqued my interest in like this other thing. You know, I had grown up in uh, Roman Catholicism when I was younger. And I'm like, this, I don't feel any connection to this whatsoever. And then I had my first experience. I'm like, this is something, you know. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is 
it's the knowledge, it's the path of knowledge mixed with the psychedelics. You have to be self-aware and want to better yourself mixed with them. I think that's the combination mm-hmm. because just the compounds alone is not going to do it in my opinion. No, I agree. So, um, <clears throat> maybe I'll add a little bit of a shade shading to what I said earlier. I really do believe the psychedelics can have an, have, have immense benefit to the spiritual journey. Uh, Although what I said a few moments ago was that it doesn't, you know, having an enlightenment moment or whatever doesn't guarantee in any way that you'll be able to bring that into the daily walk for the long term. It certainly uh, doesn't hurt, <laughs> you know, and it gives you a, a guidepost, as it were, or a, 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 in a sense, a goal uh, that you know that's real, you know that's there, and uh, hopefully you can never forget that exactly. Um, <clears throat> It's like, uh, uh, do, do, do you know? Do, do you know who Yogi Berra was? Yeah, the he was the famous coach, catcher, catcher for coach the, for the Yankees, but he yeah, was also yeah. more or less famous for the sort of uh, malapropisms where he'd say something that, on the face of it, didn't quite make sense, but but actually did. And one of my favorites from him was. I don't know if I got the words exactly right, but I'm sure this is close enough. He says um, something like. You have to know where you're going, because if you don't, you might end up somewhere else. If you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. So having, a, a, in a sense, a vision or a, even what you might call a hypothesis or theory that there is such a thing as the awakened state, it's not the, the territory of any person, particularly any religion. It's certainly not a dogma or a belief system. It's what uh, Buddhists would call what is or unconditional reality. So having experiences like that can certainly uh, inspire one to keep going in that sense. And then there's a, when you said twofold, I was thinking I have a, I have a twofold way of describing psychedelics as well. One is that they can show you the these um, unconditioned states or these connected states, or they could show you the sort of love of the universe coming through or that sort of thing. The other one, and it's not separate exactly, but the other the other function in a sense is that they can um, uh, shine a light on your own particular uh, peccadillos and wounds and blind spots. Um, and so a key part of that work uh, uh, you know, it's different for everybody and depends on what each person needs as well. But a key part of that word is that neutral, non-judgmental self-examination. Uh, it's not nasal ga- gazing. It's not narcissistic. It's actually the opposite because it's not about spinning things through your head all the time. It's about just observing. And so a really important part of that, uh, in fact, an essential element of that is humility. Because if you're really honest with yourself, that is humbling a lot of the time. You know, Here, a sim- I'll give you a simple uh, anecdote from my own experience. <clears throat> um, this was in an ayahuasca session. Uh, I haven't done this for a, a couple of years, but I was for, I don't know, five or six years, I was going to a fair number of uh, the Santo Daimi um, uh, ayahuasca works. Uh, they're the syncretic religion originally from Brazil that uses ayahuasca as the sacrament. And um, so I, they're quite strong, uh, you know, two or three repeats of the medicine, you know. And uh, it's just one word popped into my mind, pride. It just, boom, 
just one word, right? And I, and I immediately knew it was about me. That was some voice like externalized from my own inner self or the spirit speaking or whatever. It just said pride. And I immediately knew that it was meant, uh, it was aimed at me as it were, it was for me to consider. And my first thought was, um, hmm, you know, I don't really think of myself as having a lot of pride. I'm not arrogant. I'm not, you don't have a superiority kind of attitude or anything like that. But the longer I sat with that, the more I realized that pride is actually a very subtle phenomenon and uh, it weasels its way in uh, without you even realizing it a lot of the time. It has, it's the way that you want to sound intelligent or want to be approved or want to sound like you know things or even just be good at what you do in some sense. Uh, it's a way that you hold yourself apart from people in certain respects, you know, um, it, there's more to it than that. But I'm telling you that anecdote simply because uh, I just got this one word and I sat with it and I thought, yeah, there's a way in which I've held myself back or kept myself private or thought myself a little special or different or something like that. And those are all ways that uh, one can limit oneself or not in a sense surrender to the sort of egoless state of being fully present at peace and in love with life, you know? So yeah, just that. What do you think about the whole ego thing? Cause I, I initially I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. You know, you dissolve into nothing or, you know, non, you know, entity that you consider yourself on a day-to-day -day consciousness level. But, um, I've had a couple, um, you know, probably five, six years ago, high dose psilocybin experiences in the dark where, um, I think it's not, you're not losing your ego. I think your ego is important. I think it's what you feed your ego. Um, and I think that a lot of people feed their ego shit. So they treat other people mm -hmm. like shit. But I think mm -hmm. in, in reality, we would get nowhere if people didn't have some beneficial aspects of their ego to maybe drive them to do great things or help people mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. So when people say like, ego loss or things like that. I guess I understand what they're saying and I generally don't go after people when they say that kind of a thing, but I think I have a little bit of a different take um, in the sense that I think mm -hmm. you need your ego. It's just, you know, kind of keeping it in check, if you will. Yeah. Well, um, it's a, that's a interesting one too. Uh, I think it depends on in part how you define ego. Uh, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to define it from my understanding of how the Buddhists would, would define ego. So the ego is an illusion that you are separate from everything else. Okay. And I think the Buddhists, you know, if you got, you know, an enlightened master in front of you and said, uh, do you need the, that ego, that sense of ego? I think they would probably say no, because um, you don't lose your agency. I don't think when you, let go of the illusion of separateness and recognize, you know, what we've heard this term oneness so up so much, you know, and uh, I'm just on the path, you know, I wouldn't say that I've like fully realized it in a way that I can manifest that, you know, in a daily consciousness level. But um, I, I, when I, when, you know, when I first would hear that term 40, 50 years ago, oneness, what does that actually mean? You know? Um, but I'm, as I've, you know, over the course of my life journey, I've started to realize, yeah, it has to do with letting go of that definition, so to speak, or aspect or way of thinking about ego more and more. 
and identifying yourself or understanding that you are just another wave or another particle or a, and a jewel in the net of Indra as the uh, Indians, the uh, East people, India for Indians from India say, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, uh, no, that's a synchronicity. And, and, I actually, we created a social media platform. I've got to get back to work at it, but it's called Indra's web. Uh, the, uh -huh. whole, the whole idea was to connect people kind of like the uh, analogy or the allegory you just pointed out of uh, Indra's net, or I know, um, you know, Alan Watts has talked about it and a lot of different people have talked about it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a, you know, the idea that this, the universe is just a bunch of connected, you know, you could call it like string theory or whatever, but it's connected and everything reflects off of one another, uh, is a cool idea. Um, and, mm, uh, I, I, image. yeah, I like what you're, what you're saying too. And I do, I do agree with that whole, um, that whole aspect of what you were talking about with like, um, non-duality becoming one. I mean, our buddy who really got into Vedanta was explaining that they had to create terminology because, uh, you know, just the one word for everything wasn't doing it. So they kind of had to create all these other terminologies so people could even understand that we all are this mm -hmm. like one thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the point is, and again, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking from someone who I would say has fully realized this in a way that I can manifest it in the daily walk, but that I think I've had enough glimpses to understand that that is real. That is our, all our ultimate potential. That's another basic Buddhist teaching is that we are all awake by nature. Um, and that is, you know, in that definition of ego, an egoless uh, experience or not experience way of being, I guess, mindset or mind state uh, that, that, and that's why I get, particularly gave that little example of pride, because pride is all those things, the way that we keep ourselves separate, you know, that we feel even feel like we have to keep ourselves separate that you know there are others and etc cetera, etc cetera, on every level you know that we're disconnected or isolated from each other from nature from god or spirit whatever you want to call it um, and in that sense we're all afraid of dying that's that's where really the rubber hits the road right we're all afraid of dying we think it's physical death that we're afraid of and you know maybe we are <laughs> but uh, it's really ego death that we're afraid of we're afraid that we don't exist without okay so let me just step back a little and give people a picture who for whom it might be helpful uh one way that i like to talk about all that is that the uh, ego if you will or what um uh, some, you know, great, some of the great psychiatrists or whatever, like Otto Ronk, who was a student of uh, Sigmund Freud, called the lie of personality, or um, James Hollis, who's a Jungian psychi uh, psychologist, called it uh, the false or provisional personality. So what happens, uh, I think, from the, the, the moment we're born and actually maybe even in the womb, who knows? Um, and quite possibly, according to people like Chris Beige, one of the contributors to the book, uh, from past lives, we come into this world and we start forming this identity. Um, and, it's about, and it's for coping. It's for survival. So we all do it to one degree or another. It's necessary for pretty much everybody to do that. But what happens as we do that, and especially if we do it quote unquote, successfully become able to function and cope in the world, which obviously not everyone is able to do, um, 
it becomes uh, what my old Buddhist teacher called a cocoon. It's like we're building a fortress around ourselves. And it's not real in the sense that it, it's all created by the stories we've embedded and told ourselves. Well, un- ultimately told ourselves, but we've taken them on from our parents and our teachers and the environment around us and so on that tell us what we think is real. But it's all up here. It's like, this is real. This is not real. This is true. This is not true. This is fair. This is unfair. This is possible. This is not possible or whatever, right? This is um, this is who I am and what I can do. And this is what I can't do or whatever, right? Um, this is what's going to make me feel safe. This is what's not going to make me feel safe and so on and so on. So we build this this fortress or cocoon around us and then we're inside it. Um, and the problem on one level is that it also con- requires constant maintenance uh, using the cocoon image. Uh, it, it, there's constantly uh, intrusions or, you know, um, uh, attacks or wounds to the cocoon and you're constantly having to patch it up and, you know, keep that uh, unknown or that vast space out away un, you know, not, not affecting you or not threatening you. Another Buddhist teaching is that enlightenment is a constant irritation because that's who we actually are underneath all that, right? Or around all that or whatever you want to, however you want to put it. Um, and, and so there's a part of us, there's something in us that actually knows we're resisting awakening, right? We're, we're, we've created this fortress. And, it, and it, uh, Buddhists, the Buddhists say that a synonym for ego is struggle. There's always a degree of struggle or sometimes they say suffering. You know the suffering of of uh, trying to maintain this identity and you know cope and survive in the world and all that and we're afraid that we won't exist if we don't have that we're terrified so which coming back to the psychedelics for a second actually is a really interesting thing because they potentially if one can pull you you know out of that temporarily and that's where Again, I mentioned earlier on the sort of potential twofold function, you know, that pull you out into seeing that there is a reality that it's, you didn't make it up. It's not somebody's, you know, religion, philosophy or dogma. It's real. You know, some of the native uh, South American people say these states that they enter, these other states are more real than what we call reality in the, in the uh, sort of uh, disconnected, separate ego way that we live our lives, right? Anyway, enough for a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. No, I, I, I really enjoyed all that. Um, you know, going back to a little bit what we were talking about before, um, 
with the whole, you know, people taking psychedelics and still kind of being not the best people. Um, I kind of look at it like this too, which is I'll have, you know, I don't, I'm on a little bit of a hiatus. We had my son a year ago, so I haven't done uh, psychedelics in a couple of years, but um, you know, I have severe OCD. So in the past it's been really, really beneficial and helpful uh, to my process of getting outside of myself and, you know, analyzing that and then putting in the work and, um, getting it to like a super nominal level. Uh, when I, when I, when you do, let's say you have an experience, uh, that come down, you're like, Oh, I got to do this better. And I want to be a better person to this person. And I look, you know, you saw some things that you've done recently that you want to fix or, mm-hmm. um, repair or whatever. And you just want to get everything together and be the best version of yourself. Now mm-hmm. that's only, it's like a dream, right? Like, that only lasts so long that afterglow. Um, so like you mentioned something, which I think is very insightful, which is that, um, there's already like cognitive processes, uh, built up in people's personalities and stuff like that, that even if they have that experience, they're not necessarily going to be able to transcend that built in, whatever it is, pareidolia or looking at the world or pattern recognition Mm -hmm. or, um, ideas and the way things flow through them. Um, so one experience isn't necessarily going to fix that. So it's, it's them from there would have to, like I mentioned, you know, start getting interested in philosophy and ethics and morals and, um, Mm -hmm. how can we fix this thing? So I thought that was really, uh, profound what you said, because I agree with that. Like it's, it's, it's very similar to a dream in the sense that it'll slowly dissipate. It'll slowly wear off. And then you're, if you haven't put in the work while that afterglow is in effect, um, I don't think you're getting much done in my opinion. You're just, you know, on to the next experience whenever that may be, um, Mm -hmm. in the future. So I don't know. That's just my thoughts on that. I just wanted to Mm -hmm. go back to that. Sure. Well, that's why I'd like to go back to this notion of just watching the mind. That is the real work. You know, they, the psychedelics are like these sort of temporary deep, deep dives, you know, and um, I think they have immense potential that way if, if used carefully, you know, respectfully, safely, blah, blah. Um, you know, they have immense potential. You know, if you heard anything about the, the work that uh, they did at Johns Hopkins University, for example, and, you know, uh, some of it was featured in this wonderful film, Fantastic Fungi, Fungi, whatever. Um, yeah, we've had uh, Matthew Johnson on before, who's a um, a uh, researcher over there. Uh, I know they've, mm-hmm. they've got uh, Roland uh, and a few other people Roland working Griffiths. on it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a few people, but we've had uh, Matthew Johnson on who, you know, uh-huh. they're doing great research there for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I don't remember don't anyone watching or listening to this, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but, uh, you know, something like, um, uh, you know, they did one with, a uh, uh, end of life patients, terminal people that had terminal cancer, basically they, that was the whole demographic for that particular study in the early two thousands. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, these are the numbers that I don't remember, but I think something like, um, maybe a third of the people, uh, had what they would call like one of the top five mystical experiences of their lives, or maybe even the most mystical experience of their lives. And uh, basically, there was a correlation between the intensity or degree of mystical experience 
and the degree to which those people change their attitude about their their situation. So the ones that had the mystical experiences, the the, the strongest, so to speak, changed completely. You know, it's like, okay, so there, I'm part of something bigger here. It doesn't matter that my body dies. It doesn't matter. We're all, there's nowhere to go. We're all part of it. We're all part, this is the oneness thing that we, you know, referenced a while back there, right? We're all part of it. Dying is just a transition of some kind or another. Um, we're in the arms of the spirit. We're in the embrace of the internal consciousness or creative spirit or, you know, what it, divine love or whatever you want to call it. So, so there's this incredible reassurance they get from that. So that's an example right there of um, how the psychedelics can be of immense value. But again, for the ongoing work for somebody in their, you know, 20s or 30s or 40s, it has, you know, decades, hopefully in front of them. I think the uh, what's really going to make the difference once you've had experiences like that is that you moment by moment, as my old Buddhist teacher said, there's no time off in a sense. Yeah. Um, it's like every moment counts. Every moment is a moment where you can be present, where you can let go of thoughts that you don't have to be thinking. So what Eckhart Tolle said, you know, in his book, The Power of Now, he said, he said, the attitude you want to have toward your mind, your thinking mind is that you can treat it like a tool that, yeah, it's an amazing tool. You can, but if you can pick it up when you need to use it, but put it down when you don't need it, then there's this possibility for space or gap. I was there. literally just talking about what you're talking about yesterday. Yeah, literally. So the gap, just a, yeah, yeah, and that's where the wisdom comes in. In the gap, uh, the poet Rumi was really good on that when he used talked about silence a lot. He said, "Don't let don't let your thoughts cover the moon of your heart, or um, uh, let silence take you to the core of life. Or uh, silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation." In other words, silence meaning the ability to uh, quiet the mind, let it settle down and then you that's how we you know and again i'm just on the path like that with everybody else don't want anyone to think i'm some kind of enlightened guru or any bullshit like that but <laughs> but i do know enough about this from 50 years of meditation and you know having those glimpses in psychedelic states and so on that that it's when we can calm our minds quiet our minds and allow that gap that's where the unconditioned reality can present itself as it were you know and ultimately um, we can land on what is in that way that's the journey so it is the daily walk that's ultimately the most important another one of my favorite people to quote or misquote, uh, you know, getting close, but ne not necessarily getting the exact words as the great uh, religious scholar, Houston Smith. And he has said two things that I really like. Uh, one is that, um, again, this is, you know, this is paraphrasing, um, but um, I'm pretty sure this is what he meant. Uh, he said that it's um, uh, psychedelics. It's, um, it's, it's um, clear. Yeah, that's the word he used. It's clear that psychedelics, uh, can um, induce an, an, uh, uh, a religious experience. That was his language. And much less clear that they can produce a religious life. I think he used the word produce. So it's clear that psychedelics can produce a religious experience or what we these days might prefer to call a spiritual experience. Much less clear they can produce a religious life. And so that's what we were talking about earlier. And then my other favorite one from him is that what's more important 
than re, um, altered states is altered traits, right? So those altered traits, I think, only come from that daily, um, no time off, so to speak, work of um, watching stuff come up in the mind and recognizing it for what it is, neutrally, non-judgmentally, realizing it doesn't have to have power over us. We don't have to be lost in it or what old Buddhist, or the Buddhist community used to call go solid on it, you know. Um, you, you ever notice, for example, how um, uh, somebody you know who's one way when you're with them alone is so different when you get three or four more people around? You know, I've got friends like that. I used that. to when I was like, when I was younger. Actually, I used to think that was so bizarre. Like, yeah, um, even like <laughs> when I was younger, I, I used to have two versions of my dad: the one that would wear the suit and go to work, and then the one that would wear like you know a sweatsuit and we'd play sports or what you know. And it was just mm-hmm. two very different people. And I would, uh, I looked at people even when I got a little bit older like that too. And I, I found that very bizarre what you're saying. And actually, even more specifically. Um, when we would have psychedelic experiences as a group with our friend group, I found myself not liking some of my friends that I would like in day-to-day consciousness when we were having psychedelic experiences because of what you're talking about. So that's the ego, right? That's this unexamined aspect of ourselves. Because the other thing that, you know, that I, I see, and you know, I'm not, I, I probably have been guilty of it as well in some ways uh, over the course of my life, uh, that some people might think I was, you know, uh, rousing up, you know, my persona more in a public situation or a social situation. Um, but um, it tends to be accompanied by, or it, it, it tends to um, uh, induce a blind spot or be accompanied by a blind spot where you don't even realize you're doing it. You know, like where somebody has to kick you under the table, <laughs> metaphorically or literally. And it's like, okay, you don't need to do that. That's what I meant by going solid on it. Like you, we have these, you know, these um, uh, narratives of who we are and what we need to do, right? And they come, they're, they're, they're called upon without or even knowing really we're doing it. You know, maybe afterwards, a lot of people go, yeah, I know I have that side of me, but when they're in it, they don't catch themselves, right? So this is the work is uh, like to be able to watch that stuff come up and then, you can let it go. And then eventually it dies. It just dies out of neglect as it were, you know, um, uh, that you're not feeding it anymore. Like you're, you mentioned earlier yourself, you know, feeding the ego. Now um, I, I want to change horses a little bit here, if I may, Mike, because um, yeah, I just want to no make problem. sure that in case one of us falls off our stool and cracks our head and can't go on anymore, um, we get to the larger vision of the psychedelic. So I'm not, yeah, <laughs> I'm, no, I was, I'm not, I'm not I waiting was, for you to ask me the question. <laughs> I, w- I was going to actually get back to that right after that. I oh, just wanted good, good. to um, hit on a couple points. Cause I thought a couple things you brought up needed to be vetted out a little bit more, yeah, but um, so your book, how psychedelics can help save the world uh, like mm-hmm. I said, it's kind of like a compendium of a bunch of different knowledge and wisdom traditions. Um, and Julie Holland wrote the foreword, um, and I thought it was a great book. And I, I, I didn't think that you, um, based on the title, you could do what we talked about early on and just make it seem like a silver bullet scenario. Um, mm-hmm. And this is just going to fix it. This is all, you know, This is let's put the Band-Aid on it right now. Uh, but yeah. you didn't do that, and I really appreciated that aspect of it. So 
Um, can you, without ruining the book or giving too much away, can you give us just a general overview of the main points of how we can accomplish this? Right. Um, yeah, well, I don't think there's any concern about giving away too much because it's not a novel with that reaches a climax. No, I know. Like that. Yeah, so I'm not worried about that. Uh, well, it's just, as you mentioned yourself earlier on, it's a variety of uh, people coming from different backgrounds talking about these things and they're talking about them in different ways, but they're all pointing at what I think is the central thing. And that's why I said that I wanted to get to the sort of the larger issue, which is ultimately, and this is what I, there are 25, I think, contributors to the book. And I think when I appealed to each of them, I, I already knew a lot of them um, because I'm a, a co-organizer of the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference here in Vancouver. And I've been doing that for 12 years. And so I know a lot of people in the psychedelic field. And in fact, 14 of the contributors for that very reason uh, in the book have spoken at the previously at the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. So I was capitalizing on my connections that I already had for a lot of those people. Um, and what I said to them in my you know, email or phone call or whatever it was, was this is the vision, this is the larger mission of the book is that um, what it's really about is how can we change the direction? How can we help contribute toward a change of heart, a change of consciousness, a change of direction on the planet based on people knowing who they are, right? So um, that's almost more important than the psychedelics. The psychedelics because uh, another one of my favorite little tropes that I like to trot out for these kind of situations is, uh, or metaphors is that, uh, when, uh, uh, when the patient, when a patient is an advanced in an advanced state of illness, uh, strong medicines are required. And that would be literally true, you know, in the case of a, you know, a medical emergency in this case, we're talking about a planet that is ill in that sense, you know, that we don't know overall, we don't know who we are and what we're, what our true relationship is. And if we did, we'd, we'd have that connection and we would not let a lot of the things that are happening now happen. Right. So what it's really about is um, enough of enough changing consciousnesses to, um, to, um, take those understandings and realizations and connections into the world and make the changes there. So that's what it's ultimately about. Like, and I think that's actually really important uh, for people that work with psychedelics. I don't know how many people that need to hear this, but I'm sure there are some that need to hear this. Um, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist called it the Arhat mentality, that it's about um, that a lot of people think it's about me and my enlightenment or my, peace or my comfort even or my pleasure or anything like any of those kinds of things right but um uh that's actually the achievement of some level of um clarity and inner peace is in a sense the beginning point rather than the end point because it's really about and another one of my favorite metaphors is if you is, is a metaphor of a car you know, it, you, you don't have the car doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to have everything functioning perfectly. You just need to be able to have it ready enough to take on the road because that's what it was made for, right? Um, so we want to heal ourselves enough to be clear enough in ourselves of like why we're doing what we're doing and, and especially enough to care enough to want to participate in the healing of the world because I think that is 
job one, as they like to say these days, you know, or maybe they used to say when I was young, I think it was a Ford ad, you know, like job one. Um, anyway, uh, uh, you know, I, I think we're in far from equilibrium times now. I think we're in unusual times. These are not normal times. And they're, I don't think they're going to be normal times for the rest of our lives and probably much longer than that. That's actually why I put Chris Bache's chapter at the beginning, because he uh, goes for that big picture. Um, uh, if we had the time, I could even go into a little bit of uh, his journey, but maybe I could say it in sort of 113 words or less or something yeah, like that. What was his you know? book? I think I read it was like LSD and the mind of the universe. And the mind of the universe. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So he, this is the shortest I can make it. He was a, he's a retired professor of uh, religion and uh, uh, philosophy at uh, Ohio State University. And early in his career, he undertook uh, inspired by the style of work that Stan Groff was doing um, uh, to do what ended up to be 20 years uh, process of 73 high-dose LSD experiences done in the Stan Groff way, uh, uh, silent at home with a sitter uh, or in a safe space with a sitter, um, eye shades and a, a playlist on headphones, and then doing a really thorough, careful transcription the following day, which he did every time. And um, so Chris said that there were two stages to each of these journeys. They were high dose. They were five to 600 mics, micro, uh, micrograms of, um, of acid, LSD. Um, and he said the first two hours were often excruciatingly painful because they were involved. This is the ego death part we were talking about earlier. They involved dying to the identity that, you know, that I was talking about in the cocoon, that whole narrative package we put together, realizing it doesn't exist other than in thoughts. And that's who, how we've survived. So it's a complete threat to most of us on one level to let go of that. And so, but he was pulled out of that, had to die to that. And then there were layers of death beyond that, like actually dying to his identity as a human, what he called the species ego. And because he, for whatever reason, he was able to do that. After about two hours, he ended up having gone through all that and uh, and out into, uh, he called it various things, but one way he called it was um, the vast intelligences of the universe. And they started to um, uh, teach him things. You know, they, they, it wasn't like particularly visual, I don't think, like, uh, you know, oftentimes ayahuasca or even psilocybin journeys can be a lot of visuals. Oh, oftentimes. I know what you're talking about, like a thought download kind of a thing yeah exactly yeah like a tell tell a tell a teleprompter <laughs> i was gonna say you know <laughs> telepathic uh downloads um and uh and they got stronger and stronger as he learned to handle stronger energies i mean these were true energies he said one one of the sessions he did was so physically uh um uh intense uh, like the energies that were coming through were like, um, you know, being hooked up to a power generator or something. And it, and it was so strong that it took him a year to fully recuperate from that one. But, but the reason I'm telling you all this or telling your listeners and viewers all this uh, ultimately is because especially in the later third or so of these 73 uh, journeys over 20 years, he started to receive this information that we as a species have come to this point in our history, um, in our collective journey of thousands of years or more uh, of beginning to go into a what he calls a death and rebirth cycle. 
that the dysfunction of the spiritual disconnected with connect, which has cast a heavy dark shadow over the human enterprise or experience all these, you know, centuries and millennia, um, has come to its karmic comeuppance, so so to speak, for for whatever so like, combination, well, like of, a u- like a yuga cycle slash like maybe shedding whatever age we're in, and to get to the golden age again, we gotta go through the hardship mm-hmm. kind of a stuff. Yeah, another image that I like about that is the birth canal, you know, that people are saying a, a way to think of, of what's going on now is we are in the birth canal. And uh, when you're in the birth canal, it's not necessarily a pretty thing, right? Um, you know, if you've studied Stan Groff's work at all, he, he found that a lot of the LSD uh, patients that he worked with, like he used LSD in therapeutic sessions as a psychiatrist in Prague and Czechoslovakia. And, more often than not, where those people went was into birth traumas. And he came up with these four stages. The first was problems in the womb. And then it was uh, going into the birth canal, which is like you're leaving, you know, the safe space. Hopefully hopefully it was safe, but it wasn't always for those people. But um, you're going into this space where you have, you're like shockingly yanked out of uh, your your comfort zone, as it were, your nice little womb. That's why we use womb as a metaphor, right? Um, and then you're forced into this, you know, tight little claustrophobic space that feels like it could crush you or kill you. And then you struggle through this birth canal, and then there's this messy, bloody, you know, shrieking and crying birth situation. So um, we're somewhere in there. I think we're in 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 what he would call uh stage two basically mostly as a species that we're 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 being pulled out of um i mean it's never really been a comfort zone that's why i said earlier that ego is is synonymous with struggle but um we thought we knew what reality was that's what i meant by the womb or comfort zone we thought we knew and now that's being that rug is being pulled out from under under us in a lot of ways like the climate is just screwing things up you know drastically we haven't had a normal month of weather in vancouver in almost a year not one we had a record yeah, rainfall, last year you had those cold. flooding around uh, vancouver island last year whatever right all around here all around here and we and uh, was it oh, just this summer yeah in june we had, or was it this year? I can't remember. I know it was a year ago, June. We had this thing they called a heat dome. We'd never heard the term before. And uh, it was so hot uh, that um, this place a couple hours from here up in the interior, they had temperatures that were far hotter than any temperature um, uh, recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's up in Canada, right? Um, Records broken by five, no, in Fahrenheit, Records broken for three days in a row all over the place by about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And then we had the floods. Then we had the cold. And then this summer we had a drought, like unprecedented record drought. We don't get droughts in Vancouver. This is Vancouver. It's the Northwest Coast, right, Shane? Um, you know, where, um, you know, somebody had a T-shirt for... Yes. It stayed forever. Like it felt like, I think it was a month, almost that heat dome. It was two weeks, Mm-mm. three weeks. Oh, the heat dome. Yeah. Now, that was last year, right? But this year was a drought. This year was a drought. Starting on July 15th until about October 20th, there was no rain, zero. 
Never happened here before, ever. Anyway, I'm getting a little carried away with a particular example. Um, the point is that the climate could do us in just by itself, but there's a I just want to add chance. real quick, too, if, for, for yeah. Stan Groff stuff, if you're interested. you can. There's a documentary called The Way of the Psychonaut where they explain mm -hmm. um, everything he just mentioned, all the, the four yeah. stages and the birth trauma and all that kind of stuff. And he's got a lot mm -hmm. of work published out there and stuff as well, so. Oh, he's amazing. I, I, I have an incredible respect for the brilliance of his worldview is over is all encompassing, really. Um, I mean, it, it nails it, I would say. Um, yeah. So anyway, just to kind of finish that narrative, if I may, uh, the, the, the climate itself could throw us as a species into uh, survival mode uh, that may take a long time to go through. But uh, it could also have even even if it's not the climate, but I think it will be the climate for the most part that's going to trigger a whole series of domino effects that um, are going to affect uh, you know um, food sources and you know water and all that kind of thing. So um, this is not a pretty picture, and it's a shame to have to even say it in a way. But and in fact. Okay, I'm glad I'm got to this point. If you can let me ramble for a bit more here, because I think this is this is the climax. This is the key right here. Um, I think what's going to happen, and it already is happening. Yes, it is happening. Is that as the rug gets pulled out increasingly from under people in terms of these comfort zones or knowing, thinking you know, they or we know what's real and what's not, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what happens psychologically, it sort of goes without saying, is increasing levels of anxiety and confusion and fear and depression, et cetera, right? So um, uh, it's absolutely essential that um, anyone who can possibly op be open to hearing it hear from people who have had visions like Chris Bacious and other people, um, even prophecies from indigenous people who all have pointed to this time as that crunch time that I mentioned a little while ago, right? Um, uh, that it's a death and rebirth process. It's not just a death process. If you think things are getting worse and worse and worse, and that's just going to go in that direction and keep going in that direction, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to feel shittier and shittier and shittier, right? But um, I think it's Dwayne Elgin in the book. He says, what people need is a story that's simple, believable, um, and actionable, and plausible, of course, right? So we need new stories. Um, and so the overarching thing of the whole book beyond the psychedelics is that we need <clears throat> we need new stories and we need more people to hear the new stories it you might also call it an ancient story but you know for the purposes of the situation that we're in as a species it's really a new story for most people um, and, and, and again, where the psychedelics come in with all that is that they are our most powerful tools for a, you know, severe illness as it were. Um, but it's really that, that, um, you know, that's the message I hope to share with people is that, that, uh, if things look like they're getting pretty bad, um, there's a reason for that. It had to happen. Uh, it's actually a kind of a, you might say an ancient, I don't know what that is, metaphor, archetype, or something like that. Yeah. That, um, yeah. you know, that you, you can't, I think Jesus said something supposedly like, uh, you can't pour new wine into 
old skin or you can't fill a vessel that's already full or something right so i mean yeah you could, just take, a... you could take um the allegory of atlantis actually uh -huh. and just just apply yes. you could just apply instead of saying no oh, it was um the hubris of not taking you know mother nature seriously or um you know that kind of a thing and just start applying um you know, political, social things and things like that. And like you said, like harm, you know, doing to the environment and stuff like that and, and repackage that, which is kind of what you're talking about, right? You need like, we need like a new mythos or a new myth to mm -hmm. um, push us through to this other thing. And I, I think though, and I've thought a lot about this even before I read your book, but I've had experiences and I don't know if you can speak to this, but I've had, mm -hmm. you know, um, like four years ago, three years ago, uh, I'd have to look at my notes, but I had a five gram psilocybin experience in darkness where I was meditating. Um, and I came to the conclusion that as crazy as it sounds, that this compound wants us to save it, save the world, save, you know, mm -hmm. the ability for this fungi to exist. And we know you mentioned mm -hmm. fantastic fungi, mm -hmm. like one third of the ground we walk on is mycelium and fungi, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's pretty much how trees communicate and all sorts of things mm -hmm. and connections throughout the world. Um, so I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, it's, it's by being better versions of ourself We're in this kind of mm -hmm. goes with your book by being better versions of ourself, we can be better for the planet and better for each other uh, mm -hmm. and do that kind of thing. I will say this though. I think this we're headed towards some sort of a different epoch in the sense that we've never had technology like this, where we can communicate with anybody mm -hmm. at a moment's notice from across the world. And it's almost like too many people are getting too much information too quickly and it's oh, yeah. it's it's boggling everybody's mind and they don't know how to process uh mm -hmm. that it's creating all these new neuroses and issues and things like that so uh if we go by your book though you know in, in going back to your eckhart toll um thing you were mentioning about using the mind as a tool and not letting your mind use you because that's mm -hmm. kind of what it does most of the time we can use technology the same way. And I tell people that let's use technology mm -hmm. as the tool that it is and not let it use us, which is falling yeah. victim to sitting on it all day and just mindlessly mm -hmm. scrolling through stuff. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, but that was my little rant on that. Um, well, no, I, I agree with you that, uh, I mean, a tool is a tool, right? I mean, even a gun is a tool, you know? Um, you know, I'm not a... Uh, 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 100% opposed to people using guns to hunt if it's their life, their livelihood. Uh, uh, you know, hunting for sport is a whole other thing altogether, which seems to me part of the spiritual disconnect. You don't see yourself as connected to that animal. You don't see it as having a life of its own. One of the great, um, this is not exactly answering your question, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, I think one of the great uh, learning edges for humanity certainly has been for me for quite a while now is discovering the unbelievable intelligence in every form of nature it is far far beyond what we've been uh, educated or informed of you know and this is actually central to the problem that uh you know this is you know i'm, I'm not an expert or authority in this area but i think i'm saying it more or less correctly um <clears throat> the uh, christian hegemony that's 
kind of ruled the West, as it were, the quote unquote West, uh, in, included the attitude, which is supposed, I think it's right in the Bible. I'm not quite sure where this comes from, but it's been part of the teachings is that we are given dominion over the world to rule in a sense as we see fit. And then once you got into the scientific revolution of whenever that was three, 400 years ago, you started to hear from these people. I think Descartes was one of them and some of these other people that, uh, that the nature is dead matter. You know, there's no life or intelligence in, so to speak in, in nature, you know, they even used to call them dumb animals, but um, yeah, I we think Spinoza were... and Einstein rectified that later on. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still a long way from completely sinking in, but this, but the the, the research that's being done uh, on the intelligence in you know just about every creature you can possibly imagine is unfathomable, and it's wonderful, and it's part of what you know. Hopefully, will help us reconnect with things. You know, um, uh, you know just like for example. I have one of my favorite books of the last 20 years is called uh, Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm by Stephen Herod Buhner. Um, uh, and he tells stories in that book. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you this one. Um, there's a slime mold, which it's like a unicellular or something. It definitely does not have a brain. That's the key point. Um, and uh, scientists love to look for, you know, try to figure these things out, uh, you know, play with these things. I love scientists for that kind of thing, you know. Um, and so they put this um, slime mold, this brainless little, you know, cell, several celled or uniceled thing, whatever it was, on one side of a maze. And they knew what its food source was. They knew what it liked to eat. And they put the food source on the opposite side of the maze. This little slime mold decoded or deciphered its way through that uh, maze, no problem, faster than a human would, you know, of getting through a maze of appropriate size for, you know, compared to our size, right? So then they even took it a step farther. They, 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 um, they put the food source in two different places on more or less opposite sides of this maze. The slime mold separated itself into two, sent one half of itself one way, the other half the other way, both pieces got the food from that part, and then they hooked up again, right? I mean, if you just take that one example and extrapolate it to the intelligence that's everywhere, it's mind-gobbling, mind it's mind-blowing. Um, that's the world that we live in. And then, you know, the indigenous people and people that have experiences on psychedelics as well will start telling you that you can talk to trees. I mean, trees will talk to you if you're sensitive enough. So when you were saying a little while ago, Mike, that, you know, like all this you know, flood of information, I agree completely uh, that what we need to do is, and this is a, something my Buddhist teacher, the way he put it too, is slow the speed of mind, right? Slow the speed of mind. Start thinking of the mind as a tool that you can use or trying to discipline yourself, which is why I think that you know, follow the breath, universal meditation I was mentioning is essential on one in some way, whether it be just, you know, that you do it while you're walking down the street to the store, or you're actually sitting on a cushion, but you're, you, you see a thought come up. Do I need to be thinking that? Can I relet? Can I let it go right now? Can I just pay attention? You know, can I notice that there's a bird just above me that's making a sound that just happens to be related to the fact that I'm here? You know, that sounds woo-woo, but my wife just showed me a video 
uh, a YouTube video of this couple <laughs> with a camera in their car. And they're driving down this highway up in the Yukon, which is up near Alaska in Canada. And a raven flew like above and in front and above the hood in front of their car. The video lasts 25 minutes. The raven flew with them along this highway for 25 minutes. And they even stopped at one point, fed it, and they they, they they couldn't tell exactly what it was. It was like riding on the drafts or what, you know? So they stopped and the raven hung around. They gave it something to eat. They got going again. The raven joined them again and flew for, you know, another 10 or 15 miles or whatever, right? Um, and you don't think there's immense intelligence in that raven, you know, let alone that slime mold or this coronavirus that keeps mutating because it's trying to survive like everybody else. We live in an absolutely incredible uh, it, brilliant, creative, loving cosmos. You know, it's it, that's the great tragedy of human life in a sense is that when most of us are, are unable to fully respect, enjoy, realize that, you know, and again, you know, that's where the medicines can shock us in a sense out of our complacency or habitual patterns. Yeah, I mean, ravens and magpies are super intelligent. There's all those videos of them using weights to rise the or raise the level of the water so they can get the treat out of it and um, all sorts of things. I've seen ravens, there's videos of them starting fights between other animals and um, yeah, crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always been an animal lover, so that kind of stuff doesn't really surprise me. And I love getting out in nature and camping and all that kind of stuff. But um, that's the other thing too. I just don't think we're connected enough. I think too many people are just stuck inside and um, mm-hmm. you know, the TV or whatever, uh, phones and that kind of stuff. And we're yeah. really losing that connection to nature, which is spiritual. I mean, I can, you know, yeah, I've done plenty of psychedelics in the woods, but when I get up to the, mm-hmm. the camping spot initially, I like just walking around, breathing the air. It's, it's, it's mind altering in that, um, aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, uh, you know, you wanted to keep it uh, to around an hour, but I just want to ask you one more question before we start to wrap I, it up. I can go a little longer. This, oh, I'm enjoying can. it. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I got a question yeah. real quick. Look, I promise, sure. Toby, I'm not a statue. My question is, look, I actually signed up for a heroic hearts program, which takes you down to South America. I have PTSD. And uh, microdosing actually psilocybin helped me quite a bit, and I had to do it on my own. It sucks. There's no programs for veterans. I was curious what you thought about the benefits of DMT, psilocybin for, you know, combat veteran, PTSD, mental health type issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for the question, Shane. Um, I, I, I can't claim to be an expert or authority, really. Um, it's just sort of impressions from being around the medicines a lot and, you know, having a lot of people at the conference and so on and so on. Well, I would, for one, for starters, I'd say the medicines are all somewhat different that way. They don't all function the same way. Um, but, uh, one way that they can help, I think, um, uh, you know, or perhaps several of them can help, is um, is the kind of thing that I was referring to earlier about the work at Johns Hopkins. Uh, if if you can, in a sense, um, tap into the sort of mystical experience, then there's a kind of a reassurance that you're in, in a sense, safe hands. You know, uh, I think perhaps that can help. Um, uh, as far as I know, uh, in terms of actual research, 
MDMA is the one that is showing the most promise for working with PTSD. Um, are you familiar with um, the organization called MAPS, Shane? Actually, no, I'm Maps. not. I've heard that about MDMA. Yeah, so MAPS is yeah. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a very effective organization. They work with budgets of millions of dollars, all you know, donated and so on and so on. Um, it's the it's the brainchild of a guy named Rick Doblin, who's it's been his life's mission for thirty to forty years now. Um, there, uh, <clears throat> Rick decided to. Um, go after MDMA in terms of trying to get it legalized because uh, it had already shown, you know, it was legal for about 10 years uh, back in from around the mid seventies to the mid eighties until it got into the rave scene and the feds and everybody freaked out and made it illegal. But uh, there were over 400 therapists in California using MDMA therapeutically with a lot of success uh, in general, you know, couples therapy, all kinds of different therapy. And so there was a, there was a background there. There was a precedent there for what Rick decided to do because he thought, well, I'm going after, I mean, he liked all the, he likes all the psychedelics basically. And in fact, MDMA isn't even the psychedelic. It's what's called an empathogen or an antactogen. But um, uh, he went after MDMA because uh PTSD is a recognized condition that is, uh, in a sense, respected because it often does include veterans and p victims of rape and war and that kind of thing like that. So that they can, they can, um, uh, the authorities, the medical authorities and the governmental authorities can respect that. Uh, and so uh, he thought that would be the best one to try to get legalized. And so they've done now, I don't know, 10, 11 uh, phase three trials in different countries. Uh, some of them are completed uh, and they've exactly pretty, as far as I know anyway, um, there may be viewers here that know more about some of these things than I do. As far as I know, there's been quite a bit of success. And so the way yeah, they MDMA, had like, I think like a 90% success, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that, but the the the, uh, the really brief version of, of of how MDMA works with PTSD in a therapeutic environment, I'm talking about being there with a therapist in particular, right? Um, is it has this kind of threefold function. One is that it knocks out the fear, and this is why uh, the other reason they went after MDMA for PTSD is because, um, and I'm just speaking from what I've heard and read, I'm. Uh, 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 unless everybody has PTSD, which is also possible, um, I don't have it. Um, and so I'm, you know, referring to literature and so on and so on. And, and what they say about why it's so difficult to treat PTSD therapeutically is because people either have buried the memory or if they talk about it, they can just get re-traumatized. So what happens with MDMA is it knocks out the fear and then it brings in this incredible compassion. And I know that from experience. I've had a number of MDMA experiences. It's just it's sort of like the love drug in a way, right? Um, and the third function is <clears throat> it leaves the mind clear so you can articulate, you can express what's going on with you. And maybe this is almost a fourth function. You can remember it later. So you can talk about it with a therapist and not re-traumatize yourself. Um, and it's that function that I was talking about earlier in the, in the discussion, Shane, of um, that simply by being able to bring things up out of the darkness, out of, out of being buried and see them, that has, uh, sometimes it takes time, but um, uh, a powerful effect at dissipating the power of those things um, that they have over you. 
But again, you know, psychedelics can, in general, can take you out of um, your habitual zones and show you larger realities, which in themselves can be, I think, quite healing. So I wouldn't want to say that any of them in particular would not potentially be useful. Um, even cannabis has shown some, some uh, uh, you know, efficacy in dealing oh, with Shane knows PTSD. about that. <laughs> yeah. Shane knows yeah. about cannabis. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I looked it up. It is, it's 88% had a significant effect after treatment. So I was close to 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, it said 67% uh, no longer qualified for the PTSD diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you mentioned, you know, MDMA not being psychedelic. That's the argument when people, ketamine's a disassociative. MDMA is a phenethylamine that plays off the MDA receptors. So it kind of has a different... You know, and oh. it can be it can be neurotoxic uh, at higher levels, um, and have biological effects that are not as safe as like psilocybin and LSD uh -huh. and things like that. True. Um, so I, I think I mean he's that's what he says. My personal thought is, and I'm not trying to put this, but I, I feel like they, maybe they shot high to see, you know, could we get this through kind of a thing, and then because psilocybin is way safer on the lethal dose you know, the LD mm -hmm, absolutely. Scale, yeah. So. But you know, if you're doing it, if you, if you're getting a legal source or a pure source of MDMA and you're doing the proper dosage, a standard dosage, unless it's changed. And I don't think it has is 125 milligrams with a possible, um, uh, booster, uh, an hour or so after the effects kicked in, kick in from the first dose of a half. I mean, dose. that's a lot. Yeah. I've, the most I've done is 200 milligrams. And that was like, oh. Yeah, so 125, but a half dose as the booster. Right, so, right. So that's not that's less than 200 milligrams, right? Right. And that's only if you feel like you know you're okay with going a little stronger that way. And that's you know assumes it's pure. And I don't think there's any danger of toxicity with that. There are things that yeah. people need to do um, uh, to um, uh, limit the uh, the fatigue that can that tends to set in afterwards. There's there's some um, supplements you can take leading up to it during the time and afterward, well, like five HT or something like that. Yeah, that's one of them. Um, there's a number of things. I think ALA, alpha linoleic acid. There's a bunch of things and vitamin C, I think, and ginger and a few other things. But ginger is good for the tummy as well that way. Um, no, I, I think um, MDMA is to totally safe if it's pure um, and you do the right dosage and you don't do it often. And test your you stuff out there, folks. If you're out there, please. I've lost too many friends uh, mm -hmm. to powders of different sorts. Um, because yeah. of the, you know, fentanyl and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. test your stuff, just test it. If you're at a concert, I know dance safe is at a lot of these, um, mm -hmm. shows, fish shows, dead shows, festivals, all that kind of stuff. So get your stuff tested, be careful. And, you know, like he's saying, the pure stuff is safe, but you know, you gotta be careful if you're not doing it in a clinical setting. So I just want to point that out to our listeners. Well, and it, and it can create, um, uh, accumulative effects if you do do too much of it too. I mean, we're talking about, you know, healing here. We're not talking about party partying. We're not talking about recreational kind of thing, uh, at all here. We're talking about using these things in general, not necessarily, not particularly MDMA, but in general, treating them as sacred medicines for one thing. So there's this, that's another whole theme that we haven't even gotten to is, is that, you know, the notion of treating these, these medicines as sacred as, uh, you know, having an attitude of reciprocity toward them. And in fact, the native people would almost universally say, 
there is a spirit behind those medicines. And if you don't have connection with that spirit, you're not going to get the full benefit of that. And then you got ayahuasca where, you know, people talk about the need to purify yourself beforehand so that your body can properly process it and your mind can process it. So, you know, we're talking about taking MDMA in a measured dose, knowing that it's pure uh, in a therapeutic environment or with the intention of healing, you know, like if, you know, with a, a trusted uh, sitter or loved one or something like that, you know, we're not talking about that. That was almost like your lead in question, Mike, way back at the beginning of this conversation is, uh, or our lead in topic was, you know, the, the, the sort of um, magic bullet, silver bullet notion of people, you know, just wanting a quick fix or whatever like that. And it's interesting or almost ironic in a way that your podcast is called Mind Escape. Because um, what's I'm guessing what some people would interpret that to mean is like escaping from who you are. What I suspect you actually mean is escaping from the 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 sort of the you know the, what the tyranny of the thinking mind, as it were, you know, or the habitual yeah, mind about transcending, but, but in, you know, yeah, transcending, yeah, exactly. So, but what most of us, um, that's why. I equated ego with struggle or the, the, this way of defining ego as the illusion of a separate self is that uh, it's not comfortable. As I said, enlightenment is a constant irritation. So there's never a sense of complete comfort um, and emptiness in presence, so to speak. So we're always trying to, instead of going into it, which is essentially what, you know, your therapist should be telling you is go into it, <laughs> you know, sit with it, be with it, look at it, allow it to come up, uh, and again, neutrally, non-judgmentally. But in general, because we are uncomfortable, uh, we want to be comfortable, we want to get away from it. And so we tend to use a lot of these kinds of substances, you know, alcohol, alcohol being, you know, exhibit number one, you might say, or the, the worst know, one. That number one on the, on the, on the most uh, criminal wanted list in that sense, you know, but anything can be like that. Uh, in my cannabis book that I did about six years ago, which is similar format with 18 contributors. Um, uh, my favorite chapter in the whole book was Kat Harrison's Kathleen Harrison was the ex-wife of um, Terrence McKenna. And she said in her experience, a lot of people, and in particular young males in her observation, observed experience, uh, um, were using cannabis to escape and go into the sort of metaphorical or even physical man cave. And she said, not wanting to come out into, I think this is more or less how she put it, the daylight world of responsibility and, and communication and connection, you know? So cannabis uh, and, and anything like that can just be used for escaping psychedelic the big psychedelics the psych the, the psilocybins and the huachuma and the peyote and the acid not so much um well it's imprisoning you, know, you in your own stuff and forcing you to kind of you know mm -hmm. deal with but it, they're right? not the kind of thing you're going to do every weekend at a party no I don't well you think, said it best you know, you know like moderation <laughs> or don't you know you can go back to yeah, you go to Del Paracelsus, uh, dosis sola facit yeah. venenum. Only the dose makes the poison. I mean, that's true, uh -huh. right? Yeah. And this is why the set part of set and setting is so essential, right? Uh, you know, and and Yogi Berra's wisdom is that if you, like, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. It, it, the, your, the set is your intention. It's like, why am I doing this? You know, and that comes down to self-awareness too. Like, 
whether you're conscious of it or not, are you doing this to escape because you're trying to alleviate your pain, which is simply a palliative measure that you're going to have to do again and again and again. And the evidence of alcohol is, you know, beyond clear about that one, right? You know, I, I make, I, I'm not, by the way, if anyone's had trouble with alcohol, I, I don't say that in a judgmental way whatsoever, because everybody has, you know, levels of suffering. And some people that, that have had, that fallen into alcoholism, it's because they're actually more tuned in and more sensitive than other people. And they've had a harder time handling this crazy fucking world that we live in, pardon my French. Um, and, uh, and so they, 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 they want to, um, dull the pain, right? You know, that's why they, do they still use this term like feeling no pain? You know, it's a it's a description of of the of how you feel when you've had enough alcohol. Feeling no pain, right? Yeah, you like numbs I, your yeah yeah. And I and uh, again, I've never taken heroin, but um, I've heard people you know users stories, and basically that's well, Shane what can, it is for uh, them too. Shane can enlighten us. Shane was a heroin and fentanyl addict living on the streets mm. of Washington. Wow. So, so heroin, Shane, um, takes away the pain, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not only um, does it take away the physical pain, it takes away the emotional pain. It makes you numb yeah. everything. Yeah, exactly. So that's a pretty intriguing or enticing place to want to be, right? But unfortunately, it's not, it's sidestepping, Right. And again, no judgment. It's really hard to do that, but that's the only place, you know, feet to the fire. That's the only way that we're ever going to heal. Stop, yeah. When you stop, it all comes back to once you start getting, and then you're dealing with trying to stay clean while all that, because you're not dealing with it. You're just numb. So yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in a, in a way you might say it's the hardest thing in the world because there's, you know, the, uh, one of my old Buddhist teachers' um, uh, students, who was a wonderful teacher and writer in her own right, named Pema Chodron, um, has a book called The Wisdom of No Escape. You know, like dealing, you know, facing it, whatever it is, but breathing, you know, that's another thing I haven't used that word tonight, um, but is essential. I think of, uh, of bre uh, the breath as almost as like it's a it's our therapist, it's our guru, it's our savior, you know, um, that's part of being present and not being in the head any more than you need to. It's like, pay attention to the breath, let it, let it, let it be, let it go, let it come and let it go, um, and be in the body. You know, part of the, part of the awakening journey, I think, as I understand it for us humans is, is, uh, um, an, a, a, an aspect of it is an, well, an essential half of it, I guess you could say even is embodiment. You know, that enlightenment isn't about getting out of yourself. Enlightenment or awakening, if you whatever you want to call it, is about um, learning how to be completely in sync and aligned and harmonious and at peace with this physical vehicle that we're riding in, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Anyway, uh, now I'm feeling like I, I probably should... <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. We'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, but yeah. again, everybody go check out Stephen's book, how psychedelics can save the world. Um, and he has other books as well. Help, help save the world. Help Sorry. the world. I apologize. Help, no, help save. It's a big, big, big difference from just right. saying can save. You know, it's a much more humble statement. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, you're right. Yeah, I, thanks. Uh, yeah. I butchered that. Um, oh, no but yeah, he, he has other books as well. Check out the link down below. Um, and also, yeah. you can go to Stephen Gray, spelled like his name in the title, Stephen Gray Vision. 
Uh, and he's got all the links on there. You can also check out his stuff on Inner Traditions. Shout out to Inner Traditions. And also, yeah, just check out all of his stuff. I mean, obviously, if you've listened this far, you like what he has to say. You like what we have to say. So um, a lot of that stuff's in there. And, you know, the interesting thing is usually when people write books and, and, and do research, they're reciting things that um, they've kind of repackaged themselves. And you did a good job of preserving what these traditions and indigenous people and um, all these other you know people uh, that have been studying this for a long time had to say, uh, like I said, which, which I think is important. You're not just repackaging stuff. So I really like that format. Uh, but I really recommend the book, so go check that out. Um, and, uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to plug before we start wrapping it up here? Yeah, I do. Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, uh, I, I have a YouTube channel, uh, same thing, Stephen Gray Vision, although uh, the Stephen, it, it, it probably would you'd get there, there anyway, but uh, Stephen Gray is uh, mushed together, so there's no space between Stephen and Gray, and then Vision is a separate word. And I've got uh, over two dozen interviews with the very kind of people that are in the book. Some of them are in the book. Uh, and it's pretty much all um, for this reason of, you know, trying to help uh, um, humanity uh, straighten out, straighten up and fly right, as it were, um, for the future generations, the generations to come, you know. Um, yeah, that, uh, the website that you already mentioned, um, and I'm on Facebook and Messenger if people want to try to contact me. And oh, oh, that's one more thing, actually, I'd like to say. Um, I have a newsletter. I use it sparingly, respectfully. Um, uh, occasionally, I'll throw in a nugget of wisdom, but more than not, it's to s announce that I've done an interview like this, or that I've interviewed somebody on the YouTube channel, or that there's an incredible an online event of some kind coming up. But it's not mercantile in that sense particularly um and it's and i don't use it a lot so i invite people to subscribe to it uh, i'd like to have more subscribers on it that i can communicate with that way and on my website on the home page it says something i think my person who's helping me with that just changed the language up till tonight it was saying join the community but i think she might have said just change it to subscribe or something like that anyway it's right there um so that's the other thing yeah, yeah. Go subscribe to his newsletter. Also subscribe to his YouTube channel. Um, if you're watching right now on YouTube and you like the psychedelic stuff, obviously we do a ton of it. Uh, but he is a wealth of knowledge and he has access to a lot of these people in the community. So go check out his channel. Um, and yeah, we really appreciate you, you know, coming on and discussing your book and, um, you know, your research and everything. We'd like to probably have you back on in the future at some point. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't even touch on that we could probably get to. So. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, you know, I found it very interesting to do this with you. And I like, this is my favorite way of communicating and sharing about this kind of information is in an interview format. And yes, you're right. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to. We could have gone into some of the more of the actual content of some of the chapters. Uh, we could have done a whole little section on cannabis, for example, because um, cannabis uh, is under respected as a spiritual ally still. Um, oh, I agree. And, yeah. Do you know uh, Daniel McQueen by chance? I do. I actually wrote the foreword for his book. I was going to say I, I've, I've read uh, Psychedelic Cannabis. Um, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I thought that there was a lot of aspects to that one, too. As you mentioned, it's a very underappreciated. I mean, I had uh, an edible a couple weeks ago that's more psychedelic than some of the psychedelic uh, experiences uh, mm -hmm. that I've had. So it's all about 
set setting mindset dosage all that kind of stuff but um yeah i would yeah. like to have you back on and maybe just talk about cannabis next time Sure. Well, get your hands on a copy of the book, Cannabis and Spirituality, because uh, yeah. it seems like you're a disciplined uh, interviewer that way. You like to come in informed, and I appreciate that about you, Mike. Um, and if you, if you get the book, uh, um, that book, uh, then you'll have some good questions ready to do with that, too. And, and it can, you know, it doesn't have to be all about that. It can, you know, for, for my money, as it were, cannabis is also part of that bigger picture. Yeah, two of the in, um, two of the contributors in the book refer to it as the sacrament of peace, um, and I think it has a really, if it's understood properly, if it's used properly, again, not to escape, but with the intention to pay it to be present and to be tuned in. You know, when I was talking about, you know, here noticing that little bird up in the tree above you when you're walking down the street, or that kind of thing, cannabis can be an amazing. Um, ally for doing that kind of thing like you could go you know if you have a if you're near a garden that has flowers you know you could you could sit there you could have a couple of tokes quiet your mind and just pay attention and watch the bees working with the flowers and all that and pretty soon you're going to get this sense of first of all it's just wonderful to watch you know um but secondly to, you, just, you know for me anyway it starts to remind me of the interconnection of everything you know and how, and and then just you know just thinking about bees for a minute you know i mean like what is the thing it's like a half an inch long and it's got all the body parts that we have more or less right you know it's i don't know I'm, absolutely bees are fascinating. I, I can't help it i just think nature and the world is so incredible that way you know i just heard <clears throat> yeah i'm trying to leave i'm not doing a very good job here um uh <laughs> i just I just heard the other day that we have 85% of the same DNA as a fruit fly. Can you believe it? 85% of the same. I know some people same... that have the brains too. What's that? Some people, some people that have the brains of a fruit fly too. Trust me. Hang out on yeah, well, Twitter. See what happens. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, cannabis has this potential to help us. I talked earlier about the idea of slowing the speed of mind. It can speed up the mind too, of course, but if you can discipline yourself and, you know, have the intention to, you know, meditate with it or to really try to quiet your mind with it, it has that potential to really slow us down in a way that's really important for humanity now. You know, tune absolutely. in. Absolutely. Uh, and I agree yeah, with all of that. I, like I said, oh, I, I, agree. I fully endorse fan. it. I will check out your uh, cannabis book and we will have you back on. Actually, I will too. Um, cool. And yeah, cool. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, again, check out his website, stephengrayvision.com. Check out his YouTube channel, Stephen Gray Space uh, Vision. Um, and then also subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, and if you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below. We've got Patreon episodes, we've got merch store. Um, check out our new trailer for our documentary coming out in March called. As within, so without, from UFOs to DMT. It's all about experiences and people just explaining their experiences and um, laying all that out there. And we've got tons of great people in it. We've got Andrew Gallimore, Rick Strassman, uh, Rick Barnett. And then on the UFO side, we've got tons of amazing experiencers and stuff like that. So check that out. I'm actually going to play the trailer for you as we head out of here. Um, and any, anything else, Shane? Anything else you want to plug? No, I was just going to say... Uh... Stephen Gray said it. He, check out 
uh, Mind Escape on Spotify. Give give him some good reviews. Uh, Apple Podcasts, all those. He comes informed. He asks really good questions, and it's one of the reasons I enjoy this podcast. Thank you for coming, Mr. Gray. I appreciate it. And I want to shout out everybody. Check out Wounded Warrior. They helped save my life and Heroic Hearts. Hopefully this will help me. I'm going to keep shouting you out until I get up on that list, get down to South America and figure this thing out. So I appreciate everybody being here, all our uh, supporters. Thank you. Yeah, I'll add the link for Wounded Warrior if you want to support that down below. And, uh, yeah, if you're listening on an audio platform, check out our YouTube channel, which we do our episodes live. And if you're watching right now, please check out our stuff on all the audio platforms. Uh, again, we love everybody. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you next time. I'm going to play us out with the trailer. And uh, thank you so much. Good. See if you can spot me in the trailer. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close to the point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky. You know, you know you're not dreaming, but you wonder how real any of it really is. It dawned on me, it, it was real, this, this took place, but then I still didn't do anything with it, never said anything to anybody. There is some mind-altering aspect to these UFO encounters. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time. I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation, it was a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. Again, the goals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive how things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that, one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. You call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense and that when this experience is over that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die because it can't die fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now they show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug Coming from a scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetic to atmospheric to something that's physical in nature. 
there's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system, the human body, is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more as within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.